37th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. Well, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to Pixelated Paranormal. This will be episode 267. I, of course, am Sean, and with me, as always, is Presto. How are you, buddy? What's up, all you cool ghosts and goblins, you crocodunes and crocodingos and skeletors and skeletons? Uh, Daddy's doing pretty good because uh, uh, my boys just won their football game. So, by the oh. hair on her chinny-chin-chin, it was a close call. So, uh, thank you, Bengals uh, player number 58, for uh, pushing our guy into the bleachers and, uh, you know, getting a flag called on the field and moving us up 15 yards so we could kick our field goal and win the game by three points. Oh, wow. Look at that. Anyways, huh? I'm still more tired than a big dick bat, but my name's Preston. Hope you all are doing good. <laughs> well cool man i'm uh i'm happy for you and the chiefs that's pretty cool stuff i did not know how that game ended oh actually i did shayla told me right before we recorded yeah. but any hoozle that's good news man so is this their second or third time of hitting the uh super bowl this would be uh in recent years this will be their third time so hopefully they fucking pull their heads out of their asses and get us another <laughs> win yeah well there's always hope, buddy, any given Sunday. Yeah. Well, on this episode, we're finally getting to the topic that you were teasing for the longest time, the tale of Montezuma's treasure. And this is awesome because I really whoop, don't think whoop. I know anything about this one, buddy. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. And then I have the uh, the Baltic Sea anomaly that I want to share if there's enough time at the end of the episode. So... If not, we'll shoehorn that into the next time. I want you to cover it because I actually know a lot about this. So <laughs> Nice. I, I was reading your article, and I, I, I was like, what the fuck are they even talking about? And then, like, I think they're talking about uh, the Millennium Falcon. Like, Han Solo crashed uh, the Millennium Falcon in the bottom of the uh, Baltic Sea, and then I realized, oh... Yeah, well, that article was way off, so I'm going to let Sean uh, present that article, and I'm going to push up my nerd glasses. So. Well, let's start things off with a little bit of news, shall we? Because I found some really interesting stories I want to share with you and everybody else, and I think it's a great way to kind of wet the whistle before we get things going for Montezuma's treasure. Yeah. From the mirror, a couple is now spooked after watching their CCTV footage showing the potential for a dead family member walking their dog. A couple believe their CCTV may have captured the ghost of a family member trying to walk their dog from beyond the grave. The eerie clip shows a pale figure out of their old antique cabinet appear and walk with what they say is a purpose, alongside their Australian shepherd before disappearing into thin air. And this occurred back on Sunday night, January 14th, so about two weeks ago. The 35-year-old construction company manager admits he had a look of terror come across his face when he saw the unusual specter. But even more creepily, the cabinet that the specter appeared from is one that holds the ashes and urns of several dead pets and other relatives along antiques from all across the world. 
leaving the family wondering if it was truly a ghost. Because, yeah, I'd say it was. You got a cabinet of curiosities and dead people. I'm going to go ahead and guess you had a ghost. I don't know. Did you watch the video on this? I didn't. I didn't know that was part of my homework. Had I known that was my homework, I would have watched it. But, uh, you know, I figured all since, good. hey, uh, Daddy put the bulk of the episode together and I gave myself all the <laughs> speaking parts that, uh, you know, I'd let uh, Sean take over the driving wheel for the news like always. So, <laughs> All good, all good. I couldn't get the video to uh, work on the Mirror UK either. So we'll post a photo. I'll try to get it to work, and I'll post a photo to the Instagram. But Matt says, what's strange about the video is the fact the dog didn't bark or seem bothered by the figure walking out of the cabinet. And he says it's possible the dog didn't even know it was there, or this is something that visits the family often enough the dog's used to it. The dog's like, what's up, Jerry? Let's go ahead and take me for a walk, motherfucker. (laughs) Right. My father died in a car accident with my brother and stepmother when I was 14. All his things are in that cabinet. The accident happened 20 years ago. I've been asking him for a visit for many years, so maybe he finally did. Which could explain why the dog didn't bark, because it was a familiar family member. Now for this next story, I do have to drop a quick trigger warning. Unfortunately, this next story is pretty violent and it does deal with children. Over the weekend, six people, including three children, were killed and another 176 people were injured at the Uttararan Kite Festival in Gujarat on the west coast of India. It looks like due to the competitiveness of the festival, people had been reinforcing their kite string with glass and also pieces of metal, making the string sharp enough and dangerous enough to cut through flesh and other solid objects, including each other's kite strings. At the International Kite Festival, approximately 8 to 10 million people participate from around the world every single year. Unfortunately, at this event, a boy who was 7 years old and two girls, aged 2 and 3, were injured after kite strings became entangled around their necks and slit their throats. The deaths took place in different cities across the region, and two men in Gandaheim City in Gujarat, aged 35 and 20, were also confirmed to have died from similar injuries, resulting in kite strings wrapping around their necks and cutting them. That's yeah. That's insane. John read my mind. He said the first scene from Ghost Ship comes to mind here, and I was thinking the exact (laughs) same fucking thing. Like, who in the right mind thought it was a good idea to use metal strings on kites? Like, obviously didn't think that one through. (laughs) At all. Holy cow. Um. In addition to the devastating injuries caused to people, kite strings also kill and maim hundreds of birds annually. This year, 336 birds and 723 animals also have sustained injuries. Mm. Holy shit, man. That's just fucking absurd. My God. Well, shifting gears here and getting into the paranormal puddle jumper. In Perth, Australia, a mining corporation on Sunday apologized for losing a highly radioactive capsule over a 1,400-kilometer stretch of Western Australian highway. Authorities are now combing parts of the road looking for a tiny but dangerous substance. 
The capsule in question was part of a device believed to have fallen off of a truck while being transported between desert mine sites and the city of Perth back on January 10th. The truck transporting the capsule arrived at Perth Depot on January 16. Emergency services were notified of the missing capsule on the 25th. My God, nine days. Way to go. Western Australia's emergency services have called on other Australian states and federal government for supporting the finding of the capsule because they themselves lack the equipment. Now, this dangerous capsule in question is only 8 millimeters by 6 millimeters wide, and people have been warned it could have unknowingly become lodged in their car tires. The cesium-137 ceramic source, commonly used in radiation gauges, emits dangerous amounts of radiation, equivalent to receiving 10 x-rays within an hour. It can cause skin burns, and prolonged exposure could also cause cancer. The chief executive of the mining giant Rio Tinto Iron Ore, Simon Trott, said the company was taking the incident very serious and apologized for causing any public concern. We recognize this is clearly a very concerning incident and are sorry for the alarm it caused in the Western Australian community, as well as fully supporting the relevant authorities. We've launched our own investigation to understand how the capsule could have been lost. The search was involving people scanning for radiation levels from the device along roads used by trucks with authorities indicating the entire 1,400-kilometer, that's 870 miles, route will have to be searched. Western Australia's Department of Fire and Emergency Service publicly announced the capsule had gone missing Friday, two, two days after they were notified. Police determined the incident to be an accident and no criminals are currently going to be filed. Yeah, I think someone's going to be in a lot of trouble. <laughs> mm. It's wild to think that that kind of thing can cause so much radiation when this is like the size of like an aspirin. Or an mm. ibuprofen. Someone Well, switching up. gears here. <laughs> right. Switching gears here to our last news story, folks. A scavenger hunt of a different kind. When Dr. Andy Tag was a toddler, he swallowed a Lego piece. Actually, it was two that were stuck together. He thought he'd just pop them in his mouth and bite down, trying to separate the two pieces, accidentally swallowing both while trying to do so. As an emergency physician at the Western Health in Melbourne, Australia, Andy says he meets a lot of anxious parents whose children have succumbed to the same exact impulse. So the vast majority of kids, he says, simply pass the object in their stool within a day or so of swallowing any Lego pieces. Still, Andy wondered whether there was a way for despair parents needless worry. Sure, you can reassure parents one by one that, probably have, that they probably have no need to come to the emergency room or worse yet, dig through their kid's poop to search for everyday objects. But Andy and five other podiatricians, pediatricians wondered if there was a way to get the message out through science. So an experiment involving six doctors has happened and the, the results have been published. Each of the members of the doctor team, all six, have swallowed one individual Lego man head. They wanted to basically see how long it'll take to swallow and excrete the plastic toy. The study excluded three criteria. Any previous gastrointestinal surgeries, the inability to ingest foreign objects, 
and an aversion to searching through fecal matter. Researchers then measured the time it took for the gulped Lego head to be passed. The time interval was given <laughs> a found and retrieved time, a.k.a. F-A-R-T score. <laughs> Clever girl. An important exception here, Andy Tag and his collaborators also wanted to raise awareness about a few types of objects that are, in fact, hazardous if swallowed by kids. An important one is button batteries, small, round, wafer-shaped batteries often found in electronics. Button batteries can actually burn through esophagus in a couple of hours. So they're very, very dangerous and very uh, different from swallowing a coin or a Lego head. And unfortunately, I don't have the answers to this actual science project because it was just published two days ago. So we'll have a follow-up on this as soon as we have the results. But right now, I don't know. It makes me wonder, Preston, what's the weirdest thing you've ever swallowed, buddy? Um, dude, I don't know. I mean, I didn't really put <laughs> shit in my mouth when I was... Like, I wasn't one of those kids that, like, fucking ate shit. Um... So, yeah, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, everybody at the house always, like, freaks out and gets on to me because whenever I'm doing, like, a handyman project, I'm the type of guy that holds the nuts and bolts and screws and nails in my mouth. But uh, I've never, yeah, you, you know, I'm just using God's, you know, pouch that he gave me, like a little kangaroo. I'm just, you know, <laughs> storing it in there until I need it, but I don't, uh, I don't swallow. So, um yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know, but I would imagine that uh, if I did swallow, it'd only take me like four hours to poop it out. So, you think so, man? Yeah, because that's usually the time it takes for your body to digest food. Anyways, with, is within four to six hours. So, if anything, mm, like gotcha. if you're not going to digest it, you're going to crap it out. So, yeah, very true. I have never swallowed Lego pieces, but I did shove some Legos up my nose once when I was little in Texas. So. That definitely freaked my parents out. It scared me, too, until my dad's like, just cover your other nostril and shoot it out. And then, of course, it popped right out. But <laughs> hmm. Never eaten anything like that before. No pennies, no Lego pieces. <sighs> it reminds me of, what is it, grumpier old men where uh, the little girl swallows a quarter and the old grandpa's like, well, if she shits two dimes in a nickel, then you'd be worried. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, Presto, on tonight's topic, you've been looking to share this with us for a while now, so I'll let you take over and share with us a tale of Montezuma's treasure. It looks like through the uh, notes you've got here, it's going to be quite a ride, so buddy, Whew. why don't you take yeah. the steering wheel? Well, guys, here at Pixelated Paranormal, we like a few things. For example, hidden treasures or lost treasures. We love stories about that, just like Sean popped up in the news about losing a lego in your intestines or fin's treasure <laughs> um weird shit in lakes we'd love weird a uh, weird shit in lakes uh, the little russian silver swimmers the koshkanong monster we're not a real fan of nessie so fuck nessie but i mean other <laughs> weird shit in lakes we're all about it ghosts oh we love ghosts and bullshit folklore stories Woo! Boy, howdy, does the tale of Montezuma's treasures check off all of these boxes and then some. Heck, even my nicely groomed pirate beard is tingling with excitement right now. I'm just like my own little Jack Sparrow. <laughs> mm. So, what is the tale uh. of Montezuma's treasure? 
One story tells of the 1520 imprisonment of Montezuma by Spanish conquistadors. With the conquistadors demanding a ransom in gold, runners were dispatched to warn tribes to hide their treasure. And, you know, they took off with it and hid it. Hence, Montezuma's hidden treasure. However, none of the histories of the conquest, such as the true history of the conquest of New Spain by Bernal Diaz del Castillo, say that Montezuma was ever held for ransom by the conquistadors. That's because winners, you know, write the history. Or that any people of the area were told to hide their treasures from the Spanish. So possible bullshit. Already checking off a box. A labyrinth was found in <laughs> modern times at Casa Grande Runes National Monument, uh, which led to the speculation that it might be home to some of the fabled treasure. Extensive excavation of the area, however, has never turned up anything to support this claim. Shit. Bullshit again. <laughs> Man. <laughs> well, according to John Mitchell, in 1847, during the Mexican-American War, a Mexican aristocrat named Don... Joaquin enslaved the local Apaches to dig for gold in the Sierra Estralis, but later, as the United States Army entered the mountains, the Apache rose up against the Mexicans who had uh, to hide their gold in a canyon near Montezuma's head. Most of the Mexicans were killed, but at least one man survived and later went back to the mountains in the 1880s with a treasure map to find the gold. However, the Apaches still controlled the area and the Mexican man was never found, and uh, the lost treasure was also never found. Yeesh. <laughs> and newspaper articles as far as back as 1895 have published accounts of people who have claimed to have found the lost treasure, but never really have. So, more bullshit. <laughs> now, what about the spooky stuff? Baba Drock says, just in time for the tale. Booyah! You are right, Baba Drock. <laughs> How about a haunted lake, a lost treasure... Endangered snails, 8,000 ghosts, and one smiling skeleton. That's right. That's what this story tonight is all about. Welcome to the wacky world of southern Utah landowner Brant Child. Almost from the day that it was founded by Mormon settlers in the past century, the southern Utah hamlet of Kanab was loomed larger than life. Zane Gray is said to have uh, stayed there in 1912 while writing Writers of the Purple Sage. Don't know anything about it. Sounds kind of lame. Maybe uh, <laughs> it's a biographical uh, tale of Prince. I don't know. And over the years, Canab's colorful sandstone hills have served as a backdrop for a dozen of Hollywood's westerns. Such movie giants as John Wayne, Gregory Peck, and John Ford have strode her dusty streets and lodged in her motel rooms. But no stranger in town ever caused such a stir as Freddie Crystal, that name already sounds suspicious, mm -hmm. who arrived on a bicycle, and hopefully one of those big front wheel ones, because if it was just a normal bicycle, that's kind of lame. Anyways, he arrived one bright summer day back in the summer of 1914, waving a tattered a penny map. penny farthing? Is that what you're talking about? What's that? I said, are you talking about a penny farthing bike? The big wheel, yes. the little wheel? Yes. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. yeah. It went over my head for a second. I was like, wait, are you talking about the big wheel bicycle that I'm thinking of? Yeah, you know, he's just like in there like with a, with a little bicycle, burp, 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 you know, comes into town. <laughs> beep, beep, Richie. Anyways, 
He was waving a tattered map. Crystal announced that he was haunt on the trail of a buried treasure, and not just any treasure, the fabled gold of Montezuma. Hoorah, said all the townspeople, we're going to be rich. And Crystal commenced digging holes and sinking exploratory shafts in the nearby Johnson Canyon, the place where, according to his map, Montezuma had stashed the Aztec national treasure in order to keep it falling into the hands of those dastardly Spanish conquistadors. Eight uneventful years pass. Womp womp. Then, word Crystal had uncovered an old tunnel, the entrance of which was sealed but with crude bricks and mortars. So everybody grabbed their shovels and everybody grabbed their pitchforks and they grabbed their lanterns. And within an hour, every <laughs> able-bodied man and boy and canab lit out for the hills as the excitement mounted. Town fathers even printed chairs in the archaeological dig, issuing them portions to how much work each shareholder did. One who claims to remember those days was well longtime Canadian Brant Child. Child recalls that it took a while, but eventually the farmer-slash-prospector succeeded in breaking through the man-made plug that blocked the entrance to the tunnel. It led into a big room, but all we found was just bones of mules and a few artifacts. No gold, but then we found another tunnel, and it had a plug in it, too, so we dug it out. At the end of the second tunnel, the gold seekers came upon still another cavernous room, which they discovered a large human skeleton, hmm, there might be giants, propped in a sitting position. They called him Smiley. Well, because he was smiling. Of course they did. Anyways, no one else in the... <laughs> one-eyed Willie. Yeah, one-eyed Willie. No one else in the room was smiling, however, because there was no gold whatsoever. God damn it. Only a handful of pre-Columbian artifacts plus a sacrificial altar. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I walked into a cavern and I didn't find gold, and but I found like the bones of a giant skeleton who was smiling and then a s- sacrificial altar, I'd probably chub up a little bit. I'd be like, I don't know, boys. I still feel like we won. We, we yeah. played a good game. Yeah, it'd be like... We came up ahead. It's like stumbling into, <laughs> it's like stumbling into an Indiana Jones movie. Yeah. <laughs> The altar was like one where they'd tear the hearts out of men and throw their bodies over a cliff. Also, we found the ashes of ancient campfires with human fingers wrapped in bark, ready for roasting, and human legs and things like that. I mean, everybody says giants were cannibals, so we shouldn't be surprised that they found a sacrificial altar. They found bones that looked like had been gnawed on. They found roasting pits and all that. I mean, so far, this story is actually adding up. I mean, I like where it's going. Anyways, disheartened, the citizens of Kanab struck their tents, shouldered their shovels, and trudged back to their potato fields. Womp womp. <laughs> Only sporadically after that did anyone ever go looking for Aztec treasure in Johnson Canyon. As far as most folks around Kane County were concerned, the case was officially closed. One who didn't give up, however, was Brant Child, who had seen and heard enough to suspect there might be a gain of truth in Freddy Crystal's crazy story. As for the skeleton buried in Johnson Canyon, Child pretends it was a diversion, a red herring, so to speak, designed to throw gold seekers off the track. The actual spot where Montezuma buried his treasure, he believes, is another canyon ten miles to the west at the bottom of an algae green pond. 
Child's theory took root one day as he was exploring Three Lakes Canyon and came upon a symbol scratched into the face of a sandstone cliff, a mark he recognized as Aztec treasure sign. Ooh. Mm. Not long afterwards, he made an offer to buy the property, and rumors that had circulated around NAB for years that it was the largest of the three lakes was haunted. They said a stagecoach went off the road into it, and then it sank, and everybody aboard had drowned. They also said it was a bottomless lake. Not long after he acquired the deed to the lake uh, ten years ago, Child put the lie to the, the second rumor. Equipped with a 2,000-feet rope, he rode to the middle of the pond and lowered a weight. It turns out that the lake isn't bottomless. It's 35 feet deep. <laughs> so that interested me because I'd read in National Geographic that the Aztecs always liked to bury their treasure in water traps that were 35 foot deep. What the crafty Aztecs would do, Child explains, is dig a tunnel leading to the treasure trove and then flood the entrance by damming a stream and creating a lake. And to make sure that no one gave away the hiding place, everyone who had a hand in the project would be killed. Argo, the ghosts that haunt the area. How many ghosts, hmm. Sean? Five? Six. Ten? Six. I would say that that's a good guess. But Child, who <laughs> reads a lot in National Geographic and somehow knows Aztec symbols etched into the rock, estimates the number of Aztec ghosts that inhabit his wetland at around 8,000. That's how many he figures it would take to transport 45,000 pounds of gold from Mexico City to Kanab, assuming it would take about a week for a runner to cover the distance carrying a 50-pound sack of gold on his back. The Aztecs could accomplish such amazing feats because they were the finest ultra-marathoners the world had ever known. When Cortez came into the Aztec country, he was amazed at the culture. They didn't allow their children to walk anywhere. They had to run, carry weights and everything else, their water, their food, and all their commerce. They had to run. It was the law of the land, and 150 miles a day was just a normal distance for a man or teenager to run while carrying a 50-pound weight. I don't even like walking two Damn. miles a day, let alone running 150 <laughs> miles. Fuck, right. I'd, have a, I'd have a heart attack the first day as an Aztec. Like, what's wrong with that guy? He's dead, Jerry. <laughs> He's dead. So, with that being said, Montezuma could get away with such things because in his day there was no such thing as occupational safety and health administration. That's right. <laughs> Nobody gave no a OSHA. shit. <laughs> yeah. Do what you're told. Not to mention that uh, the uh, Environmental Protection Agency of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. That's right, the agency that stepped in and slapped a stop to the work order on Child shortly after he fired up his backhoe and set about digging a drainage ditch. It turns out that Three Lakes isn't just home to the restless spirit of 8,000 Aztec warriors. It's also the only known habitat of a thumb-sized snail called Oxaloma hydini cabanesis, or the Kanab Amber Snail. And under the terms of endangered species... Hey, just want to say here, you nailed that. That's some you think pretty so? good Latin, buddy. Yeah, I think so, too. Mm, I think I'd give you a solid B+. I think it's, mm. uh, I think it's the, uh, uh, 
the what tamarind vodka that I'm drinking tonight. You know, it's spicy, <laughs> is that it's what it is? Spanish in nature. It's just really ah. helping me. Just boom, look at that, bringing it all together. Summoning, summoning the Aztec spirits yourself, huh? Yeah. And under the terms of the Endangered Species Act, the mollusk cannot be molested, nor can its habitat be altered in any way. Down but not yet out, child switched to plan B. We're going to scuba dive that bitch. And that's what he did. <laughs> he hired a team of scuba divers to get to the bottom of the lake. No problem, they said. We'll have it all explored in a couple of hours and be out of here quicker than that. Mm-hmm. The team ended up making three separate dives, but each time they ran into a host of technical problems. Their air tanks lost their air. The air compressors wouldn't work to refill the bottles, and annoying things like that would happen. The second time, they came with metal detectors, sonar, intercoms, a dry suit, everything. And they were really prepared, and I was up there in my boat helping them. Well, they found the tunnel, and they got their men down there, and in his dry suit, and he got back in about 60 feet. But then we had to make a new connection on the umbilical cord and the intercom line, and we couldn't find the connector anywhere. We knew we'd brought it, but we couldn't find it. And then a couple of other things happened, and so they gave up a second time. The third time, which we would say third time's a charm, but apparently not here. Always. The, the dive team <laughs> came. They arrived fully prepared. Nothing's going to stop them. They had extra compressors, extra connectors. They had extra of everything. Dude, they're fucking going to get the job done. They're going to get that nut. Mm-hmm. But they said, we won't charge you a dime for all our work. But this time around, we want 50%. And they wrote up a contract and said, unless you sign the contract, we're not going to dive. And so I signed it. I got in my boat, and I had a hold of the intercom line. First diver went down, and he got back there about 60 feet in, and he started screaming his head off over the intercom. Get me out, get me out, get me out. There's eerie figures all around me. I'm being choked, and I can't breathe. Get me out of here. Child and the others hauled the hysterical diver up to the surface. The more he raved, the more they suspected nitrogen narcosis. So one at a time, each diver went down there, and each one had a similar experience. When they came out, they all said the same thing. We never want to dive in that lake ever again. So, that's how it sits. 45,000 pounds of gold guarded by an army of 8,000 Aztec ghosts, protected by 100,000 endangered snails. No question about it, Brant Child's Land's development plans have been thwarted. Still, he hopes to realize a profit from his investment eventually. (laughs) Since President Clinton designed the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument two years ago, tourism is on the rise and Child has decided to turn his 400-acre roadside plot into a campground and RV park and to finish building his dream home. So that's what I bought it for, to enjoy. I've always wanted a piece of property with a little bit of water. No, you bought it because you wanted that fucking Aztec gold, and the United States government said, yeah. no way, Jose. Haven't you seen National yep. Treasure 2? Um, we're guarding <laughs> the secrets. You can't, you can't touch it. 
Oh, so that's awesome. Hell yeah. That's, that story always interested me just because um, they did find something. So several of the tunnels around that area, you know, they found a giant skeleton. They found an altar. And during, like, the time of Lincoln, you know, Lincoln, when he was given some speeches and he was up in that area, he talked about how the hills and the monuments, you know, he had mentioned giants and there's giants in all of our folklore across the United States, and there's even conspiracy of uh, the Smithsonian covering up giant skeletons and things like that. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, there, there are there are some you know some theories that uh, you know the Aztecs just kind of showed up. So where did they come from? And they could have actually originated from Utah had known the area and then migrated down into Mexico. And when they needed to get the shit out of Jodge and, you know, hide their gold, they went back to their homeland. And then they did. he did find a tunnel. At the bottom of the lake, there is a tunnel. Um, but uh, because of these goddamn amber snails, nobody's ever going to be able to get down in there and <laughs> dig it up. And, you know, five, six, seven divers all experiencing the same hallucination. I mean, that makes you question yeah. what the fuck is going on. So, I mean, I think they should have just, you know, put some bags of salt and some holy water in a in like one of those little uh, you know, message in a bottle and just gone to diving and then boom, dude, get the fuck out of here, ghost. It's my treasure. A little sage spray in there, they'd be just fine. It's uh, all you need. All you need. Hey, I was going to ask you something. Speaking of sage spray, um, I was talking to our friend Leslie the other day, and she brought up a really interesting question. She was told recently by a practicing Catholic that sage spray, or sage in general, doesn't ward off evil spirits, but instead attracts evil spirits. Do you know anything about really? that? No, but... Uh... I could ask my mother-in-law. I mean, she's a practicing Wiccan, so, I mean. Oh, yeah, yeah. We'll see what she says. Yeah, you might bring that uh, Yeah, bring that up to her and see what she has to say, man. I, I'm curious to know. I, I just remembered because I saw Leslie and John were in the chat for the uh, the stream there. So, Well, it looks like we've got a little time on our hands, buddy, so I'll go ahead and jump into the Baltic Sea Anomaly. Mm-hmm. So again, hop into the old pixelated puddle jumper, and we're going to fly all the way over just off the coast of Sweden into the Baltic Sea, with a waterway existing clear back before Vikings. It's estimated there could be, since the Vikings up to, you know, like yesterday, over 100,000 wrecked ships being perfectly preserved along the Baltic Sea's floor alone. Because all the snow and ice in that area you know, from the tundra and everything else, um, has added such a weird preserving phenomenon because it kind of wards off a lot of salt. It creates the perfect environment where ships can crash and remain frozen in time in some kind of weird Arctic stasis. Well, it's with this, you know, bizarre quest to find buried treasure that a team called Ocean X back in 2011 were deep sea exploring when they came across an unusual formation that was about 300 feet below the surface just off the coast of Sweden. After they get their sonar out and kind of look around after further inspection, divers and the surface crew reported malfunctions in all the electrical equipment whenever they came within 200 meters of a bizarre object they found on sonar. The object in question was perfectly shaped like the Millennium Falcon 
from Star Wars. Peter Lindbergh and Dennis Asberg came across the giant 180-foot diameter mass back on June 19, 2011, while trolling the Baltic and observing sonar images along the sea floor. They quickly picked up the anomaly due to its circular shape and distinctive straight protrusions. Adding to the mystery was what appeared to be extensive trails. Some speculated could have been evidence of a crash landing having taken place by the strange object. So shortly after their discovery, Lindbergh and Asberg set on to create a documentary that chronicled their attempts to dive down and study just what exactly was at the bottom of the Baltic Sea. So the two parlayed their clout from a previous exploration in which they had discovered a really rich cachet of vintage champagne from a 1907 shipwreck that they sold for record prices at Christie's auction. The money allowed them to embark on a bold endeavor to investigate the Baltic anomaly, which they hoped was either an extraterrestrial crash ship or possibly a secret Nazi structure left over from World War II. Now, Presto, I don't know if you're able to get that image up there. Did you pull that up? It's a sweet action. So it looks pretty strange. I would argue it doesn't look perfectly like the Millennium Falcon, but it does look like something could have hit the ground and slid across the Baltic Sea floor crash landing, i.e., I'm thinking, you know, um, Prometheus, the ship that the, uh, oh, God, what are they called? The Forerunners, the big giant people from the Alien franchise. The, Looks like some, uh, one of the crafts you'd find there. Uh, space Jockeys, a.k.a. The Builders. Yeah, there you go. I knew you would know. I know. I'm a fucking nerd. I'm a gonna... I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready to push up my glasses and take you take you to school. So the glasses there are getting you pushed up. Okay, push them up and tape them there. Looking at their sonar imaging, the anomaly showed interesting characteristics that seemed to be distinguishing it from other natural rock formations. The explorers pointed out what appeared to be a staircase with a rounded hole encircling by a square frame that was what they believed to be artificial features meaning it couldn't just be an actual rock formation. They thought this could have been a craft. The crew returned to the surface with samples of the object that were later tested by Volker Bruchart, an associate professor of geology back at Stockholm University. He said, I was surprised when I researched the material and found a great black stone that could have possibly been a volcanic rock. My hypothesis is that the object, this structure, was formed during the Ice Age many, many thousand years ago. But despite his analysis, Bruchert said it was possible the samples they collected may be covering up something beneath the surface, something artificial, and the Ocean X team believed that this was the case. So they wanted to go back down and capture definitive proof, though acquiring the funding would prove to be difficult. And so Bruchert's assessment didn't necessarily help with publicity, as news outlets that originally claimed the find was an extraterrestrial aircraft picked up on the fact that their collected samples were nothing more than um, Guinness and granite. So, of course, news headlines began to appear, with quickly shifting the narrative from being an anomaly to being debunked. This frustrated Lindbergh and Asberg, who still to this day haven't been able to finance another trip down to determine just what exactly it is at the bottom of the Baltic Sea. Less than 5% of the planet's oceans and seas have been explored, though the Baltic is almost entirely landlocked. 
It's a massive body of water located in what's hotly contested to be a major area of World War II. So at the time, the Baltic Sea created a natural boundary between allied Soviet Union areas, neutral Scandinavia, and the axis of powers of the Third Reich. Needless to say, it was an epicenter of naval activity, primarily in the battle control over, uh, and primarily in the battle to control the Baltic states, Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia. So in the struggle for control over this key area, countless mines were planted and naval warfare waged to protect key shipping routes, especially for Germans who relied on standard uh, annual supplies of iron ore imported from Sweden. So during this time, it's believed the Germans constructed underwater structures to scramble communication signals and possibly disrupt enemy mines. So what is this? They're thinking maybe this is some kind of like, you know, radar factory. I mean, that's what they're thinking, but somebody else has another theory. So, th- And I like, I like that theory. <laughs> this could possibly be what caused Ocean X's team to experience such bizarre electrical equipment failures within 200 meters of the anomaly. So the Germans also allegedly ran clandestine programs, which attempted to create flying saucers, leading some to protest the possibility that this could be the crash site of one of the elusive Nazi Foo Fighters. These potential explanations are more practical than extraterrestrial spacecraft, though they're just as intriguing. Yeah, I gotta say, I'd be really into finding a crashed Nazi UFO just as much as I would, you know, E.T.'s mothership. But according to Russian publication PravadaReport.com, The Baltic has had UFO sightings in the past, notably during an instance in 2008, in which a silver disc was witnessed hovering over a Russian province, uh, Kilingrad. There are a dearth of reports in cooperation of the claim. And like we talked about a few episodes ago, apparently Russia claims they shot down a UFO as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, in a recent update, Lindbergh and Asberg haven't posted any updates to the Ocean X page in quite a few years. However, a YouTube video from 2012 appears to show another trek down to the anomaly in a submarine rover. Unfortunately, the video doesn't provide much in the way of answers or even anything visually distinctive, as there's a lot of sand and dust kicked up, which um, obstructs the view. However, there is a momentary glimpse of one of the anomaly's walls, showing a rock face that appears too smooth and well-shaped to be a natural feature though this is an observation from a layman's perspective. In subsequent reports, there have been claims that rock samples test turned up laminite and geothite metals, one geologist claims, which couldn't be found naturally occurring underwater in the Baltic Sea. So I don't know, Preston, what do you think? You kind of always been into this kind of stuff more than I have, and apparently you have more answers than I do Elaborate a little bit more. What exactly are we talking about with this anomaly? So it when it came out, however many years ago, um, people were like flipping their lid over it. When I first saw it, I was like, holy fuck. Like, it's a fucking UFO in the bottom of the ocean. Hell yeah, we're going to get yeah. some answers. And mm-hmm. they, they have gone back several times. Um, maybe not the original divers but other people have gone back and have done sample dives and everything and it is a rock formation um so it it is stone oh yeah and so the the one team that went back um when 
you can kind of see in the picture on the screen there, you can actually see the debris field. So it was actually drugged mm-hmm. across the 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 um, the, the sea floor. And you look at the shape, you can see a staircase, and yes, it's very reminiscent of the structure that's underneath the ocean off the coast of Japan. So in the Baltic Sea, if you go back about 10,000, 15,000, 18,000 years ago, you know, you can give yourself a, you know, a, a, a wide swing there. Um, mm-hmm. Captain yeah. Scott doesn't like our fabled Christmas story that we always tell about the mushroom shamans in uh <laughs> russia right the mushroom uh-huh, cult. Uh-huh. and if you follow that track so when you actually do like sonars and you look at that debris field you can see kind of where it slid in and where it got drugged all the way across and if you go to the beginning of that not too far from where it starts about fifteen thousand years ago give or take that was all dry land that was above the ocean at the time. And then a something happened, the sea levels rose, and it's theorized that a tsunami hit the area and it picked up that object and basically drug it across the seafloor. And the one guy that analyzed um, the the stone, the markings, the staircase, he theorized that it's actually what we're seeing from the top-down view is the top of a megalithic structure representing a mushroom from the mushrooms cults around Siberia and the Baltic Sea. And because it got got wiped out in the last ice age and that area flooded, the tsunami picked it up, the monument, and just drug Mm -hmm. it. So it's not an actual metal UFO. But a mushroom cult monument that uh, survived from uh, the Ice Age. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah, and that, that for me, like, dude, that, that, that's, that nails the head on the, you know, seals the coffin right there. That's, that hits the nail on the head. That's, that's what I think. You know, I look at that and I'm like, fuck yeah, dude, I can see it. Because you can go, like, the little mushroom shaman can walk up the little stairs, get to the top of the mushroom, fucking highest balls you know gives his whole fucking speech and then all the little mushroom cults yeah. are underneath it and they're drinking reindeer piss dude it, it all it all comes <laughs> together it makes sense you know it's just further proof for our hypothesis about mushroom santa claus yep i like it heard it I here like it a lot heard it here folks well that must be what you meant then whenever you texted me earlier and said it all comes back to one of our favorite topics and you sent me yep. a gif of a mushroom dancing around <laughs> <laughs> nice nice heck yeah man and they actually so they they had they had like a little i don't know like a you know like the movie james cameron's abyss where they had the little atv submersible that had the camera on it so they had one of those around it, and they got to the side of the rock formation, and you can see signs of where the stone has been smoothed out, and it actually does, from the bottom side, look like a mushroom cap. Um, and so it's, like I said, when you follow the debris trail and you go far enough back, you can actually see, like, stone runes of, like, a, a village or like other structures that would have been above ground 15,000 years ago. So when you start adding all those points together, it makes more sense that it's a monument and not mm-hmm. the Millennium Falcon, which, I mean, I'm all for <laughs> Nazi UFOs, but I'm also for mushroom cults. That's very true. I'll second that notion. Yeah. 
Well, good one, buddy. I like this one. I want to know more about Montezuma, but I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head there. There's nothing more for me to want to look up. Yeah. To further the whole Montezuma thing, like two or uh-huh. three years ago, there was an article released about Ar- Ark Shitty. If you live in Ark Shitty, I'm sorry. Um, but uh, this this lady was having work done in her backyard, and they actually found, like, stonework that had, like, Aztec gods and, like, glyphs and everything on it. And so the whole mm-hmm. area around Ark City, parts of uh, the upper part of Oklahoma that is on the Kansas border right there, that used to be the top of an Aztec empire that Native Americans and the Aztecs would kind of come together, and it was like a trade city. So this idea Whoa. that uh, this would be a point, and there's even reports of the conquistadors and when they talked about f- trying to follow the trail of Montezuma's gold or trying to find uh, like the fountain of youth, they talk about coming to a land that was like flat and it was cold and it was gross and there was like stocks of wheat. And when you go back and look at those those reports of what they wrote, um, I mean, it sounds mm-hmm. like Oklahoma, Kansas, and so. It's not that much of a, a jump of to think that yes they came through Kansas. I mean, shit, if they can run 150 mile, out, you know, 150 miles a day with 50 pounds, they could have came up through the city center, cut their way across, made their way up into Utah. Bada bing, bada boom, baby. <laughs> wow, fascinating, man. And of course, you're talking about Ark City, Ark City, yeah. Kansas. Yeah. Oh, did I say arc shitty? I'm sorry. You a couple times. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, nice. Well, we want to thank all you guys for joining us and gals for joining us today on our stream here. Thanks for coming on, Leslie and John and Baba Drock and everybody else. We really appreciate it. We hope you guys are enjoying these live streams. It's kind of fun. Uh, You know, again, you see how the pixelated sausage gets made here. Um some of the stuff gets cut out, so normally these episodes are, you know, five or ten minutes longer than the actual audio, so that's kind of fun. But, uh, yeah, I think, fingers crossed, man, we stay on the schedule. Recording yeah. 9.30 Sunday nights, and then I'll start dropping episodes on Wednesdays. So, if that works for you, it works for me, buddy, and yeah, we've actually committed to it now. Awesome. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. Well, next time around, I'll read the news stories before we... Uh, <laughs> Record the episode so I can know what the hell's going on, but I'm still completely wigged out on those kites. Do we know what we're talking about next time? Ah, man. You know what? I don't know. Let's look at the calendar here. Uh, next week, of course, is going to be the first week of February. I don't know, but I was going to say, do you want to roll the dice um, on episode 269? <laughs> giggle, giggle. Do another late night episode, huh? Oh, yeah, that'll be right around the love day, so that, that'll be good. Yeah, so. that'll drop the same week. It'll it'll drop the day after Valentine's Day, man. So if you want to have a little bro date with me, we'll get down yeah. and dirty and see if we can steam up these cameras a little bit. We'll, we'll wet the proverbial whistle. Hell, yeah. I've actually been stockpiling news stories and just weird stuff that's, you know, sexually weird in nature. Um, <laughs> so I've got one, two, three, four... Four stories to talk about and whatever else debauchery we can find between now and then. Who knows what kind of weird um, fan fiction you're sitting on there. <laughs> yeah. So, um, nice. yeah, I'll put it together uh, uh, when we get off uh, tonight after I email you the audio file. 
Um, I will send you a picture of a Christmas present that I got from Jeffrey. Um, oh, no. That, <laughs> um, yeah, it's paranormal smut, but it's a very specific paranormal smut that I think that you'll get a giggle oh. out of. So I'll send, you, okay. I'll send you a picture. Yeah. Yeah, send it over, dude, and uh, we'll just get things real wet time after next. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I'm sure I can stumble upon some kind of classic abduction story between now and then, so why don't we just say next episode, some kind of aliens. Yeah. Cool. Thank you guys for watching and following along with us here. Again, please like, subscribe to the YouTube channel. If you're on the social medias, check us out on Instagram at PXLParanormal. On Facebook, we are The Pixelated Paranormal Podcast. If you're on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, please like. I'm sorry, like. <laughs> please rate and review us if you could. We sure would love that. You know, we had quite a few ratings on the old feed, and we lost all those, and we had to switch over to the new one. But we're still sitting at a 5.0, which is fantastic. So please mm -hmm. rate us and review us if you don't mind. We'd love that. And we'll even share your review on the air. Presto. How we doing, buddy, on the old YouTubes? We're up to 235 uh, on the subscribers on YouTube. We now have 155 nice. videos. So, again, if uh, you're watching us live and you haven't yet subscribed and liked the channel, um, smash, smash, smash that button and uh, like us up and share <laughs> us with all your friends. Nice, man. Um, a new comment on episode 155 of the Vertical Plane on YouTube. Wing Ridden Angel says David Bowie was an occultist. Yeah, we knew. I mean, yeah. <laughs> He's yep. also got the voice of an angel, so what's your point? <laughs> oh, I would yeah. say, yes, we did know that. And I really want to deep uh, deep dive into music and the occult and talk about, you know, Led Zeppelin and all that good stuff one of these yeah. days. So maybe this spring we'll jump into, you know, a multi-episode multi musical uh, deep dive. Yeah. And listen, listen, folks, if you need a beard, if you want a beard... If you want to grow a beard that uh, now is home to endangered snails and the U.S. government's going to have to tell you to, you know, shave your beard off, uh, you should probably go over to BigDobsBeardBomb.com and use <laughs> promo code PXLPARA for 20% off your order. Pick yourself up some scents like Bay Rum, Fresh, Citrus, Mint, Classic, and Sweet Tobacco. Lather that shit up in your beard, and, uh, you know, the government will be so impressed that they're not going to care that the snails are endangered in there, and you can do whatever you want because, uh, you know, you're going to have a sexy pirate beard like me and uh, make Sean jealous. So get it all. Get it at Dobbs. Use promo code PXLPARA for 20% off your order. Uh -huh. And if you're in the Wichita area, please stop by and see our dear friend Leslie and the rest of the gang over at CD Trade Post, Pawnee, and Seneca. And until next time, folks, I would like to say cheers to the weird shit in the world and those of us that love to talk about it. And stay spooky and stay on the paranormal highway. The cast that Pixelated Paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated Paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown. Tales that will move you a little further down the paranormal highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. Email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, 
Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange.